Recently, uh, Gail and I watched a movie, uh, The Nativity. It came out a couple years ago about the birth of Jesus Christ, and uh, I would highly recommend it to you if you haven't seen it. Uh, This particular movie, what I thought they did very well was to give a good understanding of the culture and the background into which kind of Jesus was born at that time. I mean, they were living in a period in which uh, Herod was king and Rome was occupying Palestine. And there were dangers related to that. And you didn't want to get in trouble with Rome or you didn't want to get in trouble with King Herod. And so you tried to live your life in quiet as much as you could. It also showed how difficult it would have been for Mary to be pregnant, but not by Joseph. I mean, it pictured Mary trying to tell her parents exactly what had happened here. And her parents not really believing her. Now, we don't have that in the Scriptures, but it would be perfectly understandable. If your uh, teenage daughter came home and explained that she was pregnant and you're hearing her say that it was God who had done this, and they struggled to believe that because nothing like this had ever happened before. And Joseph didn't believe her. And we do have that in the Scriptures. Joseph didn't believe this. And he was prepared to divorce her quietly. He could have had her stoned to death for adultery. He didn't know. And it took an angel from God to also tell him what had happened to Mary. And Joseph believed. I admire both Mary and Joseph for their courage and faith and their willingness to do exactly what God had asked them to do. My point in sharing this is that when we know the context of the passage we are studying, it gives us a greater appreciation and understanding for what took place. That context involves both the history or the time period in which the Word of God came, as well as the context of Scripture, like what we are doing today when we've been studying the Gospel of John and passage by passage we've been going through it and you see the flow of the book and John's intent in writing. We call that the historical grammatical approach to studying Scripture. And both of those things can open our eyes to understand and have a greater appreciation for what is taking place. I think you're going to see that today in the text that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 7. The passage that we're going to look at today is the fifth discourse or teaching passage in John. And there are seven discourses in John's Gospel, plus what occurs in the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 13 to 17. If you've been kind of paying attention to this along the way, there are also seven signs or miracles in John's Gospel. And there are seven I Am statements that Jesus made. And there'll be a test on all of this at the end of the book. Okay, no. (laughs) But there are those of you that I think really find that interesting. I mean, out of all of the miracles that Jesus did, hundreds, John chose seven to give us an idea of what Jesus is like. And out of all of the times when John heard Jesus preach and teach, all of the sermons, all of the conversations, all of the kind of times he spent with the disciples... There were seven that stood out to him. For those who like to take notes on that, the seven discourses are, first of all, was the new birth with Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again. 
that no one's going to get into the kingdom of heaven unless they have been born of water and the Spirit. In the second discourse, he met with a woman at the well and he talked to her about the water of life that if she would drink it, she would never be thirsty again. But the water that Jesus gives would become a spring in us welling up to eternal life. In the third discourse, in chapter 5, he talked about the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father and the Son are one in essence. They are of the same nature. He is God. In the fourth discourse, he talked about the bread of life. He is the new manna, the bread that has come down from heaven. The fifth discourse is the one that we'll look at today where he talks about the life-giving Spirit and he introduces the work of the Holy Spirit. In the sixth discourse, we'll look at that tomorrow on Christmas Eve. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And the seventh discourse will come in chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he explains his role as the shepherd of the sheep. Well, this particular discourse takes place at what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. That's significant as we're going to see and work through this text. In chapter 6, John made a comment that uh, this feeding of the 5,000 had taken place at the time of Passover. That would be in the spring. It was just before Passover. And now he makes this note that this particular teaching takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs in the fall, in October. And so six months have passed. Six months of ministry and miracles and teaching in Galilee have gone on, and John just skips right over it. He has a reason for that. And in chapters 7 and 8, John brings to light the growing tension surrounding Jesus and His identity. He includes many of the questions and statements that were being made by family and followers and foes of Jesus as they debated, is He really the Messiah? The central question that they are talking about and asking is this, is Jesus the Christ? Is He the one that He claims to be? Well, let's take a look. I'd like to read for us verses 1 to 13 in chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time has not yet come. And having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. And now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. 
But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. We read here some of the comments that are being made about Jesus. And John tells us that at this point in his ministry, even his brothers did not believe in him. They saw what he was doing. They heard his teaching. They saw the crowds that were following him. And they kind of sarcastically said to him, Well, Jesus, you know, if you really want to be a public figure, you know, you ought to take this show on the road. Don't just stay in Galilee. You ought to go up to Jerusalem. That's where the real action is. Show yourself to the world, they said. And how does Jesus answer them? He said, The right time for me has not yet come. Now is not the time. And the word that he used there for time actually refers to things like a season or an opportune moment or time. Now is not yet the opportune moment. He also shared that the reason the world hates me is because of sin. Because I testify that what it does is evil. And so he stayed in Galilee until his brothers left, and then he went up in secret. The crowds were expecting him, John tells us. They were looking for him and wondering, where is that man? And the authorities were out to arrest him, and they were looking for Jesus. And the people were whispering among themselves, and they were divided in their comments. Some said, he's a good man. And others said, no, he deceives the people. But what John shows us in this passage is that Jesus is in perfect control. He will reveal Himself to the world at just the right time. He will do it on His timetable and not theirs. Romans 5.6 tells us, if you go ahead to the next slide, Romans 5.6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. All throughout the Scriptures, you get this picture of Jesus being in perfect control. His death, even. No one took His life from Him without His willingness to lay it down. And He tells us that He had the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. No one took it from Him until it was just the right time. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, the Scripture says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. That's the story of Christmas, that Jesus came into this world at just the right time. When everything was ready, He came into our world. When everything was prepared, the Roman rule, the Greek language, the preparation of Mary and Joseph, who would be his earthly parents, the disciples that Jesus would choose to be his followers, even the star in the heavens were all prepared at just the right time for his birth. The same thing will be true of his return, his second coming. He will come at just the right time, and the Scripture urges us to be ready to be watching and waiting for His return. And when everything is prepared, exactly as God intends, Jesus Christ will come again. 
It's also true of our salvation, that God has a time for us to come to Him also. I was thinking of a young man that I shared the Gospel with in college. When I went through and I talked about the Gospel and presented it to this young man, he kind of blew it off that day. He said, you know, I'm not ready for that now. I kind of want to do all these things first, but I hope I get around to it before I die. And I said, that's a very dangerous game to play. Because we never know if we're going to have a tomorrow. We don't know what the next day is going to bring. And that's why the Scripture says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and prompting your heart to come to Christ and you have never done that before, now is the time to believe and place your trust in Him. It's the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. The story continues here in John chapter 7. And what we see in the next section is again that the crowds were divided. And some thought he was demon-possessed while others believed in him. And we see that in verses 14 and following. I'd like to read part of that for us. Beginning of verse 14, John says, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from Him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you so angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The debate continued about Jesus. Now John tells us that all of this took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a week-long celebration of the harvest. It was in October in the month when they had brought in the harvest from the field. And this was one of three main festivals that every Jewish man was required to attend. That is, those who were living within 20 miles of Jerusalem, it was mandatory for them. Those who lived outside of that distance, it was voluntary, and many came from all over the Mediterranean to celebrate this feast. During that week, they would live in temporary shelters or booths that they built, little tents, if you will. It was done to remind the people of how they had lived in the wilderness during the time of Moses when they made their wandering in the wilderness and God had provided for them. 
It also was done to remind them that this world is not our home. It's temporary. And material things will pass. So here they came for this week and the people were building their booths. It was like a week-long camping convention, if you will. And you can think of families gathering and children love to camp and to be outdoors and they were doing this, living in their booths. It was a joyous time. People dressed in their Sabbath best for the week. To Zechariah, it was a symbol of the glorious future of God's people that one day we will live and celebrate with Him and worship Him forever. And John tells us that Jesus decided not to go up to the temple until halfway through this week of celebration. And then He began to teach. And those who heard Him were amazed at His teaching. I mean, where did this man get this knowledge? He hasn't gone to seminary. He hasn't studied the Torah like uh, those who want to be a rabbi. They didn't know that they were talking to the author of Scripture. One who knew it better than they. And in the course of this conversation, Jesus reveals that they are trying to kill Him. He knows their intent. They are still angry because of the miracle that He performed on the Sabbath that we read about in chapter 5. And Jesus challenges them to judge rightly. He said, if you will, quote, violate the Sabbath in order to circumcise a child in obedience to the Scriptures, how much more important is it to do acts of mercy on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was never intended to be given so that you could stop doing acts of mercy. God intends that we would look out for one another no matter what day of the week it is. And so he rebuked them for their hardness of heart and the fact that they were not reading the Scriptures as God intended. And he said, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. As we go on in this account, we see that the debate will continue. And in verse 30, the Jews tried to arrest him. At this they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And we also read that many in the crowd that day put their faith in him. The climactic moment came, though, at the end of the feast. And it will be in verses 37 to 39. And to understand what was going on here and to give you a picture of what was happening, we need to know the background. During the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two great ceremonies that the people observed. We're going to talk about one today, the pouring out of water on the altar. We're going to talk about the second one tomorrow, and I'm not going to tell you what that is until then. But both of these ceremonies relate to what Jesus says in chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 7, there was this daily rite that was performed by the priests that related to the pouring out of the water on the altar. The people would gather on the temple mount and they would meet the rabbis or the priest who was leading the procession that day. And when they came, they had an ethrog in their hand, which we looked up on the internet because I didn't know what that was. And an ethrog is a citrus fruit. And they carried that in one hand as a symbol of how God had blessed them in the promised land and given them fruit to eat and good things to eat that came from His hand. 
And in the other hand, they carried a lulav, which was a combination of branches from three different trees, the palm tree, the willow, and the myrtle. And it symbolized their wandering in the wilderness and the different stages that they went through. So each morning the people would gather, fruit in hand, branches in hand. They'd meet the priest, and the priest would take a golden picture that he would take from the altar. Now, I asked to borrow this. I didn't know anybody who had a picture made of solid gold, so I borrowed one like this. But the priest would come, and he would take that, and he would lead the people in procession, and they would go down to the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And he would take water out of the Pool of Siloam. And as he did that, the people recited the Scriptures from the Psalms that talked about how God would pour out His blessing among His people and how they would drink from the springs of water and how God would give them the water of salvation. And they thought of all the things that water symbolized for them. In the time of harvest, water was a symbol of life and they thanked God for the rain that He gave. And they poured out that water and they gave thanks for the life-giving water that provides food for us to eat. They would march back toward the Temple Mount and they would go up to where the altar was and the priest would circle the altar once and he would go up upon the altar to pour out the water into a basin. That water looked forward to the day of the Messiah the day when the Messiah would come and He would give them the Holy Spirit and God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh and He would give us a new heart. A heart that would be obedient to Him and love Him. They would do this each day in this celebration. And the culmination of that, the climax, came on the last day of the feast when they would come and they would go through this procession. Only this time the priest would not just walk around that altar once, but he would walk around that altar seven times. And the people would shout for him to hold that pitcher as high as he could. They wanted to see it. And they wanted to see him pour out that water upon the altar. The water of life the blessing of God and the Holy Spirit that He gives. And John tells us in chapter 7 that at that moment, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and He said in a loud voice that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And whoever believes in Me As the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within Him. Can you imagine what the crowds thought? Those that were angry at Him would consider it the height of blasphemy. That Jesus is saying at that very moment in this loud voice that I am the One who gives you that living water. But for those who believe, there would be a chill down their spines. That this ceremony that they had been observing for centuries as a Jewish people was now being explained and now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the day was going to come very soon when He would send the Holy Spirit. In verse 39, John makes the comment, By this He meant the Spirit whom those who believed in Him 
were later to receive. Because up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Holy Spirit would only come when He had returned to His Father in heaven. What a powerful moment that was. Do you remember the time when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness? That during the desert wanderings that the Feast of Tabernacle portrayed, Moses smote a rock and out of it came living water for the people. They were thirsty. They needed water. How was Moses to provide that? God commanded Moses to strike the rock and a river of water would fly out. Moses, you remember in that passage, struck the rock twice. And because of that, he was not able to enter the promised land. The reason for that was that that rock was a picture of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was only struck once. He died once for our salvation. Moses didn't know he was messing with the typology. That rock was Christ. And that living water that flowed from Him was the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that He gives to each one of us who place our faith in Him. You see what's happening here in John chapter 6. The picture of Jesus there is of bread. He's the new manna. And just as Moses provided manna for the people in the wilderness, now God has given this new bread of life. It is Jesus Christ Himself. In chapter 7, He's the rock that was there in the wilderness and He's the one who gives us the living water that if we believe will become a well of water in us springing up to eternal life. And the third picture is going to come tomorrow of who Jesus is in relation to the wilderness. But in this text, there is an invitation here that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It is open to all. The invitation is given widely. If anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty? Are you dissatisfied with life? Are you seeking meaning and joy? Are you seeking forgiveness and hope? Then come to Christ. The invitation is open to all. There is a condition here that whoever believes in Me, we must place our trust in Him for our salvation and in Him alone. We must recognize our sin and see our need for a Savior. We must come on His terms and not ours. In my devotional just two days ago, I read the story again about John Newton who once was a slave trader but came to Christ. He died on December 21, 1807. In the last year of his life, he was losing his sight and losing his hearing. He also joked that he was starting to lose his memory too. But he said two things I do remember. That one, I am a great sinner. And two, Christ is a great Savior. There is a promise here. 
that for all who believe in him, streams of living water will flow from within. If we believe, he will send the Holy Spirit to us to live within us. And our life will overflow with not just a stream, but streams of living water. You see, when the Holy Spirit is present in our life, He overflows in abundance. He renews our mind. He gives us new life. And He produces in us the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. The Spirit-filled man or woman cannot help but be a blessing to others. When the Spirit of God is at work in our life and we are yielding ourselves to Him, He flows and our life touches all of those who are around us. May that Spirit of God flow through us. Have you received that gift? Have you come to place your faith in Jesus Christ? I hope that everyone in this room has made that commitment. But if you have not, you can do so today. Say to Jesus, Lord, I want to drink deeply of You. And I want that water of Your Holy Spirit to flow through me. And I confess to You my sins. And I ask You to be my Savior. And He will do that. Let's pray. Father, over and over again, I am continually amazed by the power of Your Word and the images that are contained there when we stop to take a look. I thank You for this beautiful picture of Jesus and oh, how those words must have resounded through the Temple Mount when He declared, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me. He says that today, too, to all of us. You have given this invitation to come and drink deeply of You. If you're here today and you would like to know Christ as your Savior, open up your heart to Him and invite Him in. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who know You, may You fill us with Your Spirit. May the joy of Christ be in our hearts. And may we be sensitive to Your Spirit's prompting to show Your love and kindness to those who are around us May others see the difference that Jesus Christ has made. And may you fill our homes with joy as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. We ask it in your name. Amen.